Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast that has come through some rather technical scholastic material on the nature of the soul. It is one thing and not three, or one thing and not several. And now we're going to actually begin the climb up Mount Purgatory with our pilgrim Dante and his guide, Virgil. We have seen a group of souls at the bottom of the mountain that include Manfred, and apparently these are the excommunicates, at least if we take it that Manfred is representative of the entire group of sheep-like souls. I want to come back to that in a second after we get through this passage. We're at Purgatorio Canto 4, lines 19 through 51, a longish passage, the beginning of the great climb after the sheep-like souls have discovered the way up. You can find the translation of this passage on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can print it off. You can make comments there. You can comment to me. We can continue the discussion about this passage. Otherwise, let's get to it. Often when grapes ripen, a guy from the village thrusting a forkful of thorns into a hedge might well plug a larger hole than my leader now climbed through, with me right behind him, both of us now alone, once that regiment of souls had departed. You can go all the way up San Leo and come down to Noli. You can even summit Bismantova and even Kakume on foot, but here it seems as if a guy's got to fly. I, I mean to say on swift wings and plumes of great desire as I did behind my hiking guide who gave me great hope and lit the way for me. We climbed inside a cleft in the rock that squeezed close on either side of us. The ground underneath us required both our hands and feet. When we got up to the fissure's uppermost ledge and came out into the open air, I said, Master, which way should we go? And Virgil, to me, don't even fall back one step. Just keep going up this mountain behind me until someone who knows the way appears before us. The summit was so tall that it wasn't even visible. The gradient was steeper than a line marked from a circle's mid-quadrant to its center. I was worn out when I set in to say, Oh, sweet father, turn back and notice how I'll be left all alone if you don't wait up. My son, he said, hoist yourself up here. He pointed to a ledge a little higher up that went on to make a circle all around the slope. His words were my goad. So much so that I pushed myself to climb all the way up until that ledge was firmly underfoot. We're going to break it there with the ascent to the first ledge ring cornice outcropping of Mount Purgatory. This seems an arduous and difficult climb. We want to talk through a few things in this passage, some surprising misdirections. I want to talk through the geography just a moment with you because I think it might lend itself to a wider discussion of the poem as a whole. We want to talk about why the climb is so hard. And finally, I want to come back to the motivation for the climb itself. So let's get started. I said when we entered this episode that Manfred stands there as an excommunicated soul and we assume the other sheep-like souls around him are excommunicated, but you'll note that we're not told that they are. This is a new shift 
before in Inferno, we often saw or were told exactly who was in what pocket for what reason. The lustful, behold the hypocrites. We, I mean, right? The synod of the hypocrites, as we were told. We knew straight off that the entire group of people walking around the circles of hell or being driven around the circles of hell were a set group. With Manfred and now in Purgatorio, we start to see a slight change, and that is we infer the group from an individual. That might not seem like much to you, but if you just think about it, it's putting just one more stressor or one more demand on me, the reader. I have to look at Manfred, and I have to say, ah, everyone else around him must also be an excommunicated soul making that assumption. It does two things. It puts more demands on me as a reader, as I said, but it also makes my conclusions slightly more tenuous or tentative. I have to make an assumption, and that assumption, while most likely true, still has a little bit of squishy ground underneath it. It's as if you walk into a medical office, and one person is sitting there scratching their arm, and you think to yourself, well, this is a dermatological practice, so everybody in here has got some skin issue. Maybe everybody in there doesn't. Maybe some people are just waiting for others to come out. You've made a kind of categorical assumption that is mostly true, but you know that you can't say that everyone in that room has a dermatological issue. It's the same thing here. It just puts a slight level of hesitation under it. And remember, hesitation is our thematic. Everybody is delaying for one reason or another, whether it's Casella singing his song, whether it's Dante hanging back to listen to the song. Manfred is delayed 30-fold by the amount of time he was excommunicated. Everybody is in in a state of slight hesitancy. Even the sheep, along with Manfred, the sheep-like souls, were tentative, one stepping forward, then another. This also bears out in the conclusions we must draw from the poetry. Dante is playing an extraordinarily intelligent game with us as readers. All right, let's turn to the passage itself. And I just want to take the first six lines. Often when grapes ripen, um, the passage is when they turn purple. I said ripen. So, you know, the coloring of the grapes. We're getting close to vintage. When grapes ripen, a guy from the village thrusting a fork full of thorns into a hedge might well plug a larger hole that my leader now climbed through with me right behind him, both of us now alone, once that regiment of souls had departed. There are two misdirections that are going on here. One, we just came out of a long passage of scholastic reasoning about the unity of the soul, and then we turn to this very rustic image of a farmer and a hedge and thorns. The rationale here is that as grapes harvest, more and more (laughs) animals, furry well-wishers who are coming through and want to taste, what would happen is that the grapes would be ringed round with thorns 
particularly brambles and thorns that had been pulled up elsewhere, dried perhaps, and kept in bales so that you could kind of make a perimeter around your grapes as they came to ripeness. So the guy here from the village, he's trying to plug a hole to keep the furry well-wishers at bay. We've got this super rustic image after all that highfalutin scholastic reasoning about the soul. That's the first thing that is so interesting. And the second misdirection is that we had all those mental gymnastics about the soul and the plot did come to a dead halt as Dante the poet stepped out and explained to us the rationale for the soul's unity (laughs) based on a made-up or fictional episode with Manfred. But okay, if you can draw scientific conclusions from fictional episodes, good for you. But uh, we're going to not touch that. That's more of that tentative, strange, very intelligent game that Dante is playing. But what's happened is we stopped the plot We had all those mental gymnastics, and now this passage I just read you is all plot. It's suddenly, we're out of the head games, and we're into this space where they're climbing, and it's hard, and it's all like various mountains in Italy, which we'll get to. We keep changing directions. I use the word misdirection. Perhaps that is a bit of poor terminology. How about this? It's a constant swerve. One way, then another, then another. This swerve is built into Purgatorio, and we can see it right here, coming out of scholastic thought into this extremely rustic image. Let's talk for just a second about this rustic image, the guy thrusting thorns into a hole in the hedge. This image, and so many like it, of peasants working. We had them in Inferno, if you remember, the guy that comes out and sees the hoarfrost and gets all irritated that winter's not over and then comes out again later in the day and the sun is out and the hoarfrost is melted and then everything's beautiful. Or the guy that sits up and watches the fireflies come up in the valley below. These kind of rustic images are scattered throughout comedy and we should talk about them for just a second. They arise out of the troubadour traditions. To put this in way too general a term. The Provençal troubadour poets of the mm, 12th century, 11th century, 12th and 11th, 12th century into the 13th century common era, they had a common theme. The common theme not only is about love, we can talk much more about that down the road in Purgatory, but the common theme was once upon a time, everything was much better than it is today. Today, everything is confusing or rotten or twisted or not exactly correct. And there is one place that remains pure, and that is the countryside, the landscape, nature, we would say post-Romanticism. This place remains pure. And when we see turns like this in Dante, this is part of the way we can link him back to that troubadour tradition that enters Italy through Frederick's court in Sicily and makes its way up the peninsula. And finally, we'll get much more of this later in Purgatory, finally makes itself known fully in the, quote, 
new style of poetry, unquote. We'll get much more about the new style down the road in purgatory, but I'm just setting that discussion up here to tell you that part of the troubadour tradition is it used to be better. Now it's kind of crappy. There is one place where it's still good out in the countryside, out in the gardens, out in orchards, out in nature. Let's move on in the passage to those geographical locations. Let me read the next six lines. You can go all the way up San Leo and come down to Noli. You can even summit Bismantova and even Kakume on foot. But here, it seems as if a guy's got to fly. I mean, to say, on swift wings and plumes of great desire, as I did behind my hiking guide who gave me great hope and lit the way for me. Let me just go through the geographical references here. San Leo is the chief town in Dante's day of Montefeltro uh, in the ancient duchy of Urbino. It's not very far from modern-day San Marino. It's a pinnacle like San Marino, if you know what I'm talking about, a kind of pinnacle with a city up on top of it. It was fairly well known in Dante's day. And again, the chief town of Montefeltro. Noli is in a completely different locale altogether. Noli is over on the Ligurian coast. And in Dante's day, Noli could only be reached by land by an extremely precipitous descent down those coastal mountains on the edge of Italy in Liguria. You could, of course, approach it from the sea, but to get there by land, it was pretty uh, difficult. Notice how far apart these places are. This place by San Marino, now we're on the Ligurian coast, and we're going to do it again. You can even summit, the passage says, Bismantova. This is in Amelia. It's about 20 miles or 32 kilometers south of Reggio. It is, even today, a place that is very steep, a place that, uh, you know, requires a bit of skill to get up it. And then we finally end with Kakume, Monte Kakume, as it's now known, which is in the Lapini mountain range, which is southeast of Rome. This is a long way away. Southeast of Rome, not halfway to Naples, but if you go out into the Italian peninsula southeast of Rome and yet headed down toward Naples, you're going to hit Kakume. These references are far flung, and you'll notice that they get bigger and bigger and bigger. There is very little chance that Dante ever saw Kakume. In fact, there's probably little chance that he ever saw Noli, maybe Bismantova, maybe San Leo. What is going on here? The geography is getting bigger and bigger. It's widening out across the Italian landscape, and something else happens in the passage. Watch it again. You can go all the way up San Leo, and then we have all of that geographic description. Here it seems as if a guy's got to fly. I mean to say on swift wings and plumes of great desire as I did behind my hiking guide. Notice what just happened. We went from you, meaning me, the reader. And I should tell you that in the Florentine, the word is one, like the French on. The word is one can go all the way up, but I translated it more colloquially into modern English as you. But still, it's a third person reference that takes the reader in. And then you'll notice that that changes 
to I. This, it strikes me, is what's so intriguing about these six lines. There is a way that Dante is widening his readership. He is, A, taking me into account by telling me I could climb, let's say, Bismantova or Kakume. He's including me in the ascent that he then turns into a personal journey. So we're not very far from Namezzo del Camino di Nostra Vita, the opening line of comedy, in the middle of the journey of our life, including me into this. But he's also geographically widening the perspective of the poem, which means the readers from more and more places in Italy are being encompassed. Oh, I know where Kakume is, or I know where Bismantova is, or Novoli. Oh my gosh, I went down that path once. A widening readership. Dante may be coming to terms with the fact that his own draft hand manuscript, which we no longer have, of Inferno has now been in circulation and is proving popular enough that it's being transcribed in various places. And he may be coming to terms with the fact that he's writing for more than just some warlord in Verona. He may be coming to terms with the fact that his audience is widening and part of that is by again constantly including me in the journey and also widening the geographical references. So let's look at what happens to them. We climb inside a cleft in the rock that squeezed close on either side of us. The ground underneath us required both our hands and our feet or knees really but they're having to crawl you know i'm an inveterate hiker if you've listened to this podcast and i have certainly been in places where like oh my gosh i gotta go on hands and knees up this slope because oh my gosh even when i was in my 20s i was doing that kind of stuff but now in my dotage i do it even more anyway when we got up to the fisher's uppermost ledge and came out in the open air again i said master which way should we go notice the pilgrim's confusion And Virgil says to him, don't even fall back one step. Keep going up this mountain behind me until someone who knows the way appears before us. This is probably a reference to a passage in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where Jesus says, wide is the way or broad is the way to destruction, but narrow is the way to life. I'm paraphrasing it, but that's essentially what it says. This tight squeeze is probably referring to that passage. This is the beginning of several tight moments over the course of Purgatorio. So this passage in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 is going to be referenced several times over the course of this canticle. But also we should note that Virgil doesn't know the way. This seems really intriguing. He says, keep going up this mountain. That's much he knows behind me until someone who knows the way appears before us. Virgil is becoming much more of a cheerleader rather than someone who is saying, behold the hypocrites or whatever he's saying, you know, behold the thieves, behold the barriers. Instead of that Virgil, 
this Virgil is much more of a cheerleader. Keep going. You know, let's let's go on it. I mean, Dante even says that Virgil gave him great hope and lit the way for him. He's a motivational coach and will become increasingly over the course of Purgatorio a motivational coach as well as an intellectual leader. Whenever I think about this, that is, Virgil as motivational coach in Purgatorio, I always think of that question that Castelvetro asked in 1570 of Inferno 2. Remember, Beatrice says to Virgil in Inferno 2, if you will go and save Dante, I will sing your praises in heaven. And Castelvetro, in his commentary, in a very snide way, said... Questo che monta a Virgilio. What good does this do, Virgil? I always think about this as Virgil becomes increasingly a cheerleader. Dude, what are you doing this for? What are you hoping to gain out of this, Virgil? If Virgil is a cheerleader to get the pilgrim up Mount Purgatory, then Virgil is more heroic than I imagined. So what? He gets the pilgrim up here. What's going to happen to Virgil? He's not going to heaven. He's not going to go anywhere. He's damned. Virgil's got a long walk home after all of this. In fact, it's making Virgil's life harder. Think how far Virgil has to walk. Questo che monta a Virgilio. I'm always drawn to that question. And now the climb itself. The summit was so tall that it wasn't even visible. The gradient was steeper than a line marked from a circle's mid-quadrant to its center. Now, you should know there's been a lot of commentary on this line. But basically what we're saying is it's a 45-degree angle grade. If you take a circle and you divide it into quarters, you know that there would be right angles at the center of the circle if you're drawing quarters in it. And then you take one of those quarters and you bifurcate it halfway. Well, once you bifurcate a 90-degree angle, you get a 45-degree angle. This is a really steep ascent. Let me say, as an inveterate hiker, a 20% grade is bad. A 30% grade is holy crow. A 45% grade, you're getting near rock climbing. You're getting near repelling territory. Not quite, but I mean, you're really making an ascent here at a 45% grade up. I, Dante says, was worn out when I said in to say, oh, sweet father, turn back and notice how I'll be left alone if you don't wait up. Oh, that fear of abandonment. It's always sitting right there, that fear I'm going to be left behind. Don't leave me behind. That fear of seeing his own shadow and thinking he'd been abandoned. It is the pilgrim's constant motivation and a motivation he needs to solve. His abandonment issues have to be solved over the course of Purgatorio, and they will be. Oh, just wait. Virgil says then, my son, hoist yourself up there. He pointed to a ledge a little higher up that went on to make a circle around the whole slope. This is our first cornice, our first outcropping that goes around the mountain, first of many. His words were my goad, so much so that I pushed myself to climb all the way up until the ledge was firmly underfoot. Let's talk about the arduous climb. Why is the good hard and the bad easy? Now, I know you're going to say, well, because it is. (laughs) Okay, right. But that is an assumption we all make. What's with that assumption? Why can't we assume that the good is easy 
and the bad is hard. I just want to ask you this question because I think it's really interesting to sit back and think about it. Get yourself a glass of wine and think about what this says about human nature, about our abilities. What does it say about the way we see ourselves? Why is the good always uphill and the bad is always downhill? Why isn't the good downhill? Why isn't the good the easy way? There is all things in here from Judeo-Christian traditions about human desires, about the fall, about the way that people are corrupted, about the way that people turn out of the way. But I would say that the good is hard and the bad is easy is nigh unto universal Why is that? And what does it say about the way a human mind thinks about itself? We got up to the top here onto a ledge and we've got them out on it. And I want to go back in the passage to lines 28 through 29, because I think that at this point we can see the motivator, the absolute crux of this all plot passage of the climb. It's the line that says that you have to climb on swift wings and plumes of great desire. Con lale snelle e con le piume del grandissimo. That is the key to the whole passage. Desire is what makes the passage work. You undertake the hard way because of dissio, desire, because there is something beyond mere wanting. There is something that is actually down there and don't want to become coarse, but down there with the sexual stuff of your existence, desire that pushes you toward, I don't know, that PhD in particle physics, in my case, that PhD in 19th century American lit, that pushes you toward wanting to do the right thing. And in the end, the only way that you can make the climb, you know this, is with Dicio. And this is Dante's great insight that desire is the fundamental motivator of the climb. Robert Darling, the grand and now late Dante scholar, claims that there's a Neoplatonic vision going on here and that there's a kind of Neoplatonic vision of the soul as having wings and that it can escape the body. And maybe, but honestly, no, no shade on Darling, but honestly, I would like this passage to be more human. The fundamental way that we behave in the world is founded on our desires. When our desires are fully functional, they make the climb possible. That when our desires are intact, they make our choices real. That when our desires are expressed, they make what's ahead of us the clear and obvious way. I realize, again, that we are all sunk down in the mire in which somehow desire is bad. But what happens if we pull that out of this long Calvinist Western tradition and we say that in the end, sure, there are bad desires out there, of course, but that the fundamental way to the good is through your desire. 
One more time, reading the passage, Purgatorio, Canto 4, lines 19 through 51. Often when grapes ripen, a guy from the village thrusting a forkful of thorns into a hedge might well plug a larger hole than my leader now climbed through with me right behind him. Both of us now alone once that regiment of souls had departed. You can go all the way up San Leo and come down to Nole. You can even summit Bismantova and even Kakume on foot. But here, it seems as if a guy's got to fly. I, I mean to say on swift wings and plumes of great desire, as I did, behind my hiking guide who gave me great hope and lit the way for me. We climbed inside a cleft in the rock that squeezed close on either side of us. The ground underneath us required both our hands and our feet. When we got up to the fissure's uppermost ledge and came out into the open air again, I said, Master, which way should we go? And Virgil, to me, don't even fall back one step. Just keep going up this mountain behind me until someone who knows the way appears before us. The summit was so tall that it wasn't even visible. The gradient was steeper than a line marked from a circle's mid-quadrant to its center. I was worn out when I set in to say, Oh, sweet father, turn back and notice how I'll be left all alone if you don't wait up. My son, he said, hoist yourself up there. He pointed to a ledge a little higher up that went on to make a circle all around the slope. His words were my code, so much so that I pushed myself to climb up until that ledge was firmly underfoot. Thanks for being part of this journey on the podcast, Walking with Dante. We have begun our arduous ascent. <laughs> the good is always hard. Uh, Mount Purgatory. I hope that I've given you food for thought, things to think about. And before we wait for what's going to happen on this ledge, we got to get to it. Now we did. And now you know we've got to stop and something's got to happen. You know the rhythm of comedy by this point. We walk and then we find and then we walk and then we find. So we got to find. That's in the next episode of Walking with Dante. To get there, subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. That would be fabulous. And could you please write a rating in whatever language you're listening to this in, in whatever podcast platform you're listening to this in. A rating would be spectacular and help me with my otherwise unsupported work to make it through all of comedy. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time.